Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. And this is Dinner Table Politics. I gave you the option to introduce yourself first. It just didn't seem right. All right. Well, you, uh, so tonight we are doing this right after President Trump has announced the Supreme Court pick, Brett Kavanaugh. Big day, big day for America. Uh, your thoughts or feelings? Um, I haven't looked up a lot about him. I heard that he's a safe pick, whatever that means. So I guess that means it won't be too hard to confirm him, but I don't know much beyond that. Well, in practical political terms, it's not going to be hard to confirm him at all. There's going to be a lot of screaming and yelling. But the Democrats do not have the capacity to block this nomination. Uh, They used to have the filibuster. That's been decimated, and it it only applies to legislation. It doesn't apply to appointments. And they tried to filibuster the Gorsuch appointment, and the Republicans got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court appointments. So all they can do is try to persuade enough Republicans to abandon this guy, which is one of the reasons why I think he is the safe pick. One of the women that was being considered was a hardcore Catholic who had participated in pro-life groups, and Diane Feinstein says, the dogma lives loudly in you, in her confirmation. That's pretty dope for the guy who is got nominated, right? Like, he's like, oh, I have this, like, basically confirmed job until I die. Well, right. That's pretty nice. It's like it's like tenure, except with a ton of power over the laws of the land. Well, that's absolutely true. And in many ways, it's become the most powerful branch of government, which is directly. Do you think think he's going to have a party like with like a cake in the shape of the Constitution or something? Uh, Would you like to bake him one? Um, No, that sounds like a lot of icing to like write the words and stuff. I don't have the dexterity to do such a thing. Well, uh, you know, you you would talk, we talked up before we started this. Uh, we wanted to make this sort of a broader discussion of the history of the Supreme Court. And it's interesting because the battles over the Supreme Court were not something that the founders really envisioned. In fact, your buddy Alexander Hamilton, you're a big fan of him. Alexander Hamilton... There was no oh, song. Can we about- cut that out? That was terrible. That's <laughs> good. They heard your lovely voice. Uh, Alexander Hamilton argued in Federalist Number Seventy Eight. I quote: "The judiciary." Alexander wrote the other fifty-one. There you go. So that's better. But they never mentioned no, the role of the Hamilton judiciary. wrote the other. I'm Hamilton. sorry. I'm just embarrassing myself so much tonight. Well, look. Gosh. Uh, 
I, I haven't started singing yet. Anyways, so let's we'll, just okay. let's just continue. The judiciary, on the contrary, has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of the society, and can take no active resolution whatever. It may truly be said to have neither force, force is all in capital letters, nor will, will all in capital letters, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. Well, that's interesting, because then I have a quote from T.J. Thomas Jefferson that says about the Marshall Court, The Constitution is a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, which they may twist and shape into any form they please. Yep. So a lot changed between... Alex's quote and TJ's quote. Right. So what changed? Um, I guess Marbury versus Madison. That was the whole thing of judicial review where it's like um, the Supreme Court can overturn laws passed by Congress right. if they think it violated the Constitution. And I guess that Hamilton didn't I right. don't know, well, envision well, so, that happening. Well, Hamilton was talking about the, the plain text of the Constitution. Uh, Article 3 outlines the powers of the judiciary, and nowhere does it grant the judiciary the power of judicial review. And in fact, a number of things in the in the uh, Article 3 don't have any... Well, I need to back up. In fact... Rewind. I'm not going to edit it out because I think that was helpful. Okay. That, that was a good rewind. Uh, much of what's going, what goes on with the Supreme Court is based on precedent, not necessarily on constitutional language. For instance, how many people are on the Supreme Court according to the Constitution? How many people should be on the Supreme Court? According to the Constitution? Yes. It's a trick question. Uh, I don't know. It's a trick question because the, the Constitution doesn't outline how many people Oh, my. That was tricky. Dang. Right. So initially there were six people on the Supreme if, Court. If anyone ever goes on Jeopardy and like gets that question right just because they listen to the podcast... I demand some of the winnings. Yeah, they need to cut us in. Cut you in? Or just me. Just you. You're fine. Uh, well, do you remember touring the original Supreme Court mm. uh, chamber when we went and toured the Capitol? Yes, it was boring. It had no windows. <laughs> it had no windows. That, incidentally, was where uh, all the pictures were taken when my father was sworn into the Senate. They swear them in on the Senate floor, and then they gather in the old Supreme Court. Oh, wait, no, I'm lying. They gather in the old Senate. There's an old Senate building. You are messing a lot of things up tonight. Although that Supreme Court chamber was the set for the movie Amistad. Have you ever seen that movie? I have not. Steven Spielberg movie about a slave ship where the slaves rose up and killed everybody on the ship and went back to escape, and they ended up in America by accident. Whoops. And uh, they went on trial, and the final scene is in the Supreme Court, and they filmed it in that chamber. Huh. Uh, that's exciting. Another Jeopardy question. It's a bad movie, but... Uh, who wants to be a millionaire or something? If, is that show still on the air? I don't think so. No. So the Supreme Court forever and ever uh, was largely considered to be above politics. And in fact, even though Jefferson made that statement about the Marshall Court, uh, Abraham Lincoln later made a statement where they ruled against him and he said, well, they have made their ruling, let them enforce it. In other words, good old Abe, man. Good old Abe, Abe really... who suspended habeas corpus and did a number of things that were. Judi- Incidentally, today is the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment, which made all slaves free. Well, there you go. Signed by Abraham Lincoln. He was a good guy for the most part. I'm kind of a fan. Happy anniversary, 14th Amendment. We're glad you're here. That's exactly right. 
But uh, what's happened uh, in recent times, particularly, uh, is that the Supreme Court has become more and more a vessel for shaping policy than for actually dealing with judicial issues. My judicial philosophy, which I'm sure you're, you really want to know. Do tell. Do tell. Uh, you can tell yours. Do you have a judicial philosophy? Um, no swear words <laughs> in the rulings. You know, that's a movie. You, go, you need to go see that movie with Judd, Judd Nelson from The Breakfast Club. Anyway, he spends two days determining whether or not a swear word should be allowed in the ruling. But uh, uh, I see the Supreme Court as the referees of America. That essentially the the players on the field are... They they have to wear uniforms just like the refs. They do. Oh, there's so many similarities. There's so many similarities. But the uniforms... I, and and I, I hark back to... And sometimes they get ran into by the players and hit in the, in the head with balls. And That's exactly maybe right. Maybe they don't. I don't know. Well, you know, this last year, your brother Jamie... Uh, your 13-year-old brother, who was then 12, when he was playing on his basketball team. Uh, I think their record was what? Poor guy. 0-12? Oh, that makes me sad to think about. Well, after every single game, Jamie would come home and he'd start screaming about how terrible the refs were. The refs were through, through the game. The refs were cheating. The refs were making all the calls for the other team. And no matter what team you're playing for, you expect the referee to be unbiased and not to make calls to benefit one team or the other. And it's a thankless job because the referee always gets yelled at, even if he makes a good call that hurts the home team, or if he makes a bad call that benefits the opposing team. Every, everybody always hates the ref. Would you agree? Do you hate refs? Um, I hate them when they make a call that I don't like, but I love them when they make a call that I like. Well, that's exactly what's happened with the Supreme Court, is that now people expect them to... They need whistles. That would be cool. I want to see Ruth Bader Ginsburg with, with a whistle. You know, I went and saw the Supreme Court in just... I saw one session of the Supreme Court last time we were in Washington. Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Gator Bader. Geez, I'm going to mess that up. Uh, what is her real name? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> She looks like Hans Molman from The Simpsons. Have you ever seen I don't Hans know. Molman? You're making a lot of just weird, vague references to things that nobody has seen in this podcast. Excuse me. Everybody has seen The Simpsons. Yeah, but I don't know that character, and I've seen The Simpsons, so... Clarence Thomas sat there during oral arguments when I watched him, and he was asleep. He was sitting in the corner. Dream room. job. <laughs> Holy cow. He never says anything in oral arguments, and people get really angry at him for that. But... Uh, so you, you look at the Supreme Court, and what's happened, particularly in recent years, is that the Supreme Court has become an active player on the field. And it's all because of the idea of what they call a living constitution. Have you heard that phrase before? Um, I, I, yeah, I think so. That Just that like it's, the Constitution isn't stagnant, like it's not set in stone, kind of. That like, as times change, so do the things we need from the Constitution. I don't know. Right. That's essentially what it means. Or maybe it's like that one um, textbook from Harry Potter, you know, that Haggard gives Harry. This is a reference I'm sure most people will know, yeah, unlike see, yours. You're the one making... Like the, like the monster book, you know, that tries to attack right. Harry. I think that's the Constitution. It's like, and it's living, and like it crawls around in a cage. Or maybe it's like, it's like Night at the Museum, and it only comes alive at night, you know? And it's, <laughs> it has like legs and a personality or something. 
Uh, yeah, that's 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 one. That is a great. That's what National Treasure should have done. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk okay, about I'm gonna, what else a living constitution. Yeah, could I'm. Be. I'm just gonna imagine during the break a Nicolas Cage movie where he's running around trying to catch a living constitution. I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence and then I'm gonna tame it and name it that's and become friends with it. <laughs> All right, here we go. That was one good break. Yes, it was. Uh, the concept of a living constitution has been mocked by conservatives. Walter Williams, who I don't know if you've ever heard of, he's a professor of economics, uh, talked about the idea of playing poker and having the rules be living. If, if, that would be fun. Yeah. Maybe. It sounds like something that happens when people get drunk, honestly. Right. But the point is, the point of any rules is that they are fixed, that they are not living, that they are dead as a doornail. And the idea of a living constitution means that you can start to interpret the constitution in ways that benefit your policy point of view. Essentially, it makes judges players on the field because they start to interpret the constitution to get the policy outcome that they want. And a good judge, in my estimation, is one that is willing to uphold laws that they think are awful but are still constitutional. you know Antonin Scalia? Are you a fan? Um, isn't he the one that retired? He's the one that retired. Well, no, he didn't retire. He died. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He died. Right. R.I.P. And, and Antonin Scalia um, was known as a, a hardcore conservative. But the fact is, he was more than willing to uphold um, Supreme Court decisions or, or uphold laws that he didn't personally like. The Dang. Mo- the he most, was a real one. Well, the most prominent... We he, miss you, Scalia. Well... Uh, your grandfather, my father, took a lot of heat, particularly from his senatorial colleague, Orrin Hatch, over laws banning flag burning. And uh, he, my dad did not like flag burning, but he felt that it was constitutionally protected for a form of free speech. And uh, um, Antonin Scalia, who was considered a conservative, agreed with him. He said, if I were king, I would not allow people to go about burning the American flag. However, we have a First Amendment which says that the right of free speech shall not be abridged. Burning the flag is a form of expression. Speech doesn't just mean written words or oral words. Burning a flag is a, is a symbol that expresses an idea. And so he uh, voted with the justices who said that flag burning is constitutional. Wait, is it constitutional? So, like, they ruled that it was? They ruled that it was. Oh, so legally, you can burn a flag in protest. Scalia also said, if a state enacted a law permitting flogging, it is immensely stupid, but it is not unconstitutional. A lot of stuff that's stupid is not unconstitutional. Wait, so flogging is constitutional? According to Scalia, it was. Interesting. I would think it would be cruel and unusual punishment at this point. It depends on what is on the end of the whip. Like, what if it's feathers? <laughs> well, then that would be unusual. But I guess it has to be cruel and unusual to be unconstitutional. Right. So the the, um, the nuclear war over judicial nominations really began when Justice Robert Bork was nominated. Bork. Uh, Robert Bork's confirmation hearings were so contentious that his last name has since become a verb. Wait, who was who was he nominated? Who nominated him? What president? Ronald Reagan nominated Robert Bork. Ooh, Ronnie. Uh, and uh, he was, everybody considered him to be absolutely brilliant. Uh, and they also were terrified that he was going to overturn Roe versus Wade. 
which is the um, which is the abortion abortion ruling abortion ruling, which found a constitutional right to an abortion in the emanation right we of talked right about privacy that a right before. right I, I think you know anyway that's a whole other thing but uh, people people weren't worry weren't interested in whether or not that's good law they were interested in whether or not abortion would remain legal and saw the Supreme Court as the proper vessel for determining the legality of abortion and so Robert Bork got uh, got beaten up like no other nominee in history Ted Kennedy took to the Senate floor and he said, Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would be would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. School children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. Oh, that sounds horrible. That's a pretty the, lousy image. Yeah, the shutting the shutting the fingers the door on the finger, that's an awful image. Right. But it was also kind of nonsense because what Robert Bork would have said was abortion should go back to the legislature. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion remains legal in all 50 states. People don't understand that. They, but but since Roe versus Wade has become this huge touchstone, I'm going to use I'm going to use that name now when like something horrible happens, I'm going to be like, "Oh, they borked it." You you wouldn't be the first. That was borked. People talk about that all the time. When Clarence Thomas was the, was nominated in ninety one, they talked about borking his nomination Bork. too. <laughs> borking. Borking has become a verb because of That's, Robert. This is Bork. the first time I've ever heard of it. But uh, well, there you go. But ever since then, prior to Robert Bork, what happened in Supreme Court nomination hearings was they determined whether or not a judge was qualified. And tremendous amount of deference was given to the president to determine whether or not the judge was appropriate to sit on the Supreme Court. So the president was like the HR guy well, going, pre- going through the resume? Yeah. Well, the president the president has the constitutional ability. Uh, he, he is given the power to appoint the Supreme Court with the advice and consent of the Senate. That's what the Constitution says. And that's been abused. FDR, for instance, uh, one of the things the court... Uh, really for a very long time, probably up until the mid-20th century, uh, was very deferential to legislative power. The, the legislature could pretty much do whatever it wanted and the court wasn't going to stand in its way. And uh, and when FDR started passing the New Deal... Oh, wasn't that when he tried to like make a mandatory retirement or something? Well, he, or... Tried, he tried... So the fact... This goes back to the beginning. AP U.S. history is coming it, back to me in tiny little drops. In tiny little drops... You go back to um, the New Deal expanded the role of the executive branch in ways that the court felt was entirely inappropriate. And the court ruled a number of things that FDR was trying to do unconstitutional. So FDR's remedy to that was to uh, he wanted to appoint six new Supreme Court members and have 15 people on the court. Oh, right, 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 right. Well, then who... Oh, wasn't it Adams that tried to pack the court? Well... That was like the court packing thing, right? Well, usually when you talk about court packing, you're talking about FDR. Yeah, but that was Adams. Yeah, consult Google. Let's see what Adams... Well, Adams was the second president. I don't know if Adams tried to increase the number of people on the court. But... Uh, the, the Midnight Judges Act. Okay, what was that? That was um, an effort to solve an issue... Um, Thomas Jefferson didn't want the judiciary to gain more power over the executive branch... So 
right before 19 days before his um, administration ended, Adams filled as many of the newly created circuit judgeships as possible. Um, they were known as the midnight judges because they right. were. And then the famous Supreme Court case of Marbury versus Madison involved one of these midnight appointments. Oh, okay. Oh, so I guess he wasn't like appointing them to the Supreme Court, but he was appointing them to circuit. He was packing the judiciary. So, like, the Supreme Court has always been contentious. Uh, yeah, but the the deference that was given to a president's ability to be able to choose someone they agree with wasn't really argued about with the kind of intensity that we're seeing now with every nomination. Maybe it was, but it was Bork. just the white rich guys that were doing it doing the arguing right the rest of us were left out well uh so the resulting wars over the court have been brutal and nasty uh and this promises to be uh somewhat brutal and somewhat nasty but there really isn't a whole lot that can be done unless the, the the key to making sure that kavanaugh doesn't get on the court if that's the case that power lies with two female senators Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, uh, both of whom are Republicans, Republicans, both of whom are pro-choice, and both of whom don't want to see Roe versus Wade overturned. And so I think Kavanaugh was the blandest nominee possible to be able to get through that sort of difficult. The uh, blandest. Dominant. So that's, that's not usually an adjective you want to be described by, but I guess in this case. I guess in this case. Well, th- did that go over? Is that what you wanted to talk about? Or yeah, that was good. All right, that was good. <laughs> Well, so next week, we got to figure out something else to talk about that's equally good. That's, yep, that's how things work in the world. That's, yep. that's correct. So until then, I'm Jim Bennett. We're going to be thinking of spicy new things to, to discuss. I'm going to nominate you to the Supreme Court. What do you think? I'm not very bland. I don't think it would go over very well. All right. Well, I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. Signing off.